several songs that are great examples of how to speak truth to yourself in the midst of what can sometimes be trying circumstances. Appreciate that very much. Let me ask you this morning, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to the small little book of 3rd John, smallest book in the New Testament. I mentioned last week that we will be in light of uh, what is one of my assignments, but then also coming off of the heels of Jesus sending out the disciples in Mark chapter 6. We'll spend this week and next week studying the letter of 3rd John as it gives an apostle's instructions to one man in one local church about how this mission is to continue on. It's tremendously practical to us. We can relate to Gaius uh, more closely perhaps than we can relate to anyone else throughout redemptive history as he really most likely saw the death of the apostle John, that final apostle, and then began living in the time frame that we live in, the post-apostolic era where now the local church is the one who continues the mission. And you actually see, as we read through the letter of Third John, I want to read through the whole thing to set up the context, and plus it's only 15 verses, so it's just easier that way. Um, I want to read the whole thing to set the context, and you'll even notice as we read several things, but one of the things you'll notice is that John refers to himself, just as he does in Second John, as the elder, the name that he came to take on from the churches. It was, of course, a, a title that reflected his age, but it was most especially a title that reflected his position within the church. And you'll notice that he doesn't call himself the apostle, but he calls himself the elder. And you'll notice that he references the church several times in the book of Third John, which is an indicator to us that John understood that as the apostles faded out of the scene, the authority of the local church was taking precedent, even over the authority of the apostles. So 3 John, this morning we'll study verses 1 to 8, but we will uh, read verses 1 to 15, the entire letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. 
We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a precious gift your word is to us. As we approach the holy ground of your word, we ask you now for your help. We ask for hearts that are humble and hungry, ready to receive the nourishment that your word gives to us. We know, just as the Apostle Peter tells us, that by the truth, by the nourishment that this word gives to us, that is how we will grow spiritually. So we not only ask that you would help us through the letter of 3 John to grow spiritually, but Lord, we expect that you would do that very thing because we understand the power of your word. We give attention to your word and everything that we do because we know it comes straight from you. It is our authority. It is how we know who you are and who we are and how we must live in light of who you now have made us as new creations in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would use 3 John, specifically these verses this morning as we study, to create in us a deeper, more profound love and commitment for the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the ways in which this church has already practically applied these principles from 3 John. That is not an evidence that we are wonderful that is an evidence that you are great and gracious. It's an evidence, Lord, that you have transformed us. You have changed us. You have taken priorities that revolved around us and made them then to revolve around you. So we pray that you would continue to do that, Lord, that you would continue to help us not only to proclaim the gospel, but to support others who go to proclaim the gospel as well. We ask for your help as we study your word We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's somewhere around the year 90 AD, and the church is still in her infant stage at the very beginnings, some 60 years perhaps in age so far. The truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, the message which he himself called the gospel, has been spreading throughout the world, and it continues to go out. It's been spreading rather quickly. Souls are being saved, lives are being transformed, and cities, as the people in Ephesus declare, are being turned upside down by the message that all men are sinners against the God who made them but that the Lord Jesus Christ came to pay that penalty for them so that by believing in him, they might be reconciled to God by his payment and by nothing that they have done or could do. They must simply repent of their sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to accomplish the work of making disciples which Jesus had left them with, the apostles understood that this would require preachers to travel throughout the world and preach the very same message that Jesus himself preached. 
This was a lesson that they had taught not only themselves, but taught the churches as well as they traveled throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire, and established churches everywhere they went. As the apostles faded from the scene, it was the priority then of these local churches to continue that message, to advance the truth about Jesus Christ. As the focus shifts from the apostles, then on to the local churches, there was one apostle who remained, John, the apostle of love. By this time, he would have been a very old man. Church history tells us that he reached an age and a physical stature that required that he be carried on a stretcher by the churches. And everywhere he went, he continually told them, children, love one another. And when asked why he would say that over and over again, almost as though it was too simple of a message, the Apostle John would reply, because it is the Lord's command and it is enough. As John carried out this work, he experienced the very same things which Jesus did. Some high points to celebrate and some low points to endure. As the apostles faded, it was necessary that the local churches take up their work of spreading the gospel, the very truth that Jesus Christ himself had come to proclaim. John knew this, and so he wrote letters. Letters that would give instruction to the churches, letters that would be preserved by God himself, and handed down to every faithful local church from then on. In addition to the gospel according to John and the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, John wrote three small little letters. We know them today as 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. The church was very creative back then. 1 John deals with the subject of encouraging the churches generally, multiple churches, in what was sound doctrine and to refute the error which the Antichrists were preaching, a false gospel that said that Jesus was not God. Second John was written to a specific local church to encourage them to abide in the teaching of Christ and then to warn them about traveling teachers who were going around and spreading a false gospel. And then there's third John a letter that's written to one specific man in one specific local church, although we don't know which local church that was, and a letter which encourages this one specific man to continue his faithful work, to walk in holiness, to walk in the truth, and to support those very preachers that John's church, most likely the church in Ephesus, was sending out into the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there was another man in the church. We're not quite sure if he was in the same church as Gaius or if he was in another close-by local church and had some influence in Gaius' church. But this man, rather than understanding the commitment that Jesus Christ had given to his church to make disciples, was more committed to himself than anything else. Rather than support the very preachers whom John was sending, 
He not only opposed those preachers of the truth, but then he would kick out of the church faithful people who sought to support them. He was a man who, like so many other times in the local church we see, was all about himself, all about his own agenda, refused to acknowledge any authority above him whatsoever, and simply did whatever he wanted to do. By doing this, then, he prevented the message that the Lord Jesus Christ had come and that in the name of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins and life itself. And not only did he prevent that message, but in that particular culture, one of hospitality, he also shamed the apostle and the local church by rejecting the very men who came with their stamp of approval. Just as Jesus sent out the apostles on that very first mission in Mark chapter 6 to preach the gospel and to be dependent upon him and the kindness of his people, the local church in John's day was doing the very same thing. Sending out preachers of the gospel who needed the support of other Christians in foreign places so that they could advance the truth that in the name of Jesus there is forgiveness of sins. We fast forward nearly 2,000 years and the reality is that the Lord Jesus is still doing this very same thing. And that the work of advancing the truth, the work of spreading the gospel, still depends upon the faithfulness of local churches sending out preachers of the gospel and other local churches supporting preachers of the gospel. This is Christianity. This is the basis of how our God will save people. This is how the Lord Jesus builds his church. The book of 3 John then lets us into a scenario, a a scenario that was cause for rejoicing and a scenario that was cause for grief. It turns out that even in the early stages, surprise, surprise, the church wasn't perfect. The church never will be perfect until perfected when we see Jesus face to face. And so we can complain that there is no perfect church. We can talk about all the failures of the local church or we can get going. We can understand that nothing will ever be perfect in a fallen world. You will never have the right method. You will never have the right practice. You will never have perfect harmony. Instead, there's work to be done. Work that includes spreading the gospel, walking in light of that gospel, and supporting others who seek to do that very same thing where that gospel has not yet been heard. This is what the book of 3 John gives to us, a wonderful picture of what it is to not only live for the sake of the truth, but to support those who go out for the sake of the truth. As we come then to these first eight verses of 3 John, we'll look at them this week. Next week, we'll look at the second half, the the final half of the book of 3 John, This morning, we'll see what it takes to advance the truth. And from these two verses, I want to point out to you two foundational requirements to advance 
the truth. Two foundational requirements to advance the truth. What will it take to advance the truth? The truth, by the way, being shorthand for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not truth generally, as in one plus one equals two. Christians are concerned, of course, about general truth, but there is the truth that supersedes general truth. The truth as it is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are concerned to get the facts of the matter out, but we are most primarily concerned to get the fact of the matter that the Father sent the Son to bear the sins of his people and to grant forgiveness to all who believe in him. That is the truth which we are most committed to. And so these two foundational requirements then, as we observe them in the life of Gaius, give us a good model, a good example, and foundational necessary requirements that must be found in our own lives if we are to be about advancing this truth. The first one then is that Christians, uh, it takes to advance the gospel, Christians walking in personal holiness. The first foundational requirement to advance the truth is Christians walking in personal holiness. Verses 1 to 4 begin the the opening of this letter. And in verse 1 and 2, we find what is a fairly normal heading, a normal greeting in a letter in those days. In verse 1, John expresses his love for Gaius. He says, to the elder, the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He identifies himself, who he is, the elder. He needs to say nothing else about his identity. Everyone knew who the elder was. It was the Apostle John. There were certainly elders in local churches, but when you received a letter that was from the elder, you knew it was the elder named John, the one whom Jesus loved. He then identifies who it is he is writing to. Not a church like most of the letters in the New Testament, but one specific man. And not just any man, a man whom he loved, a man whom he loved deeply. Some of our translations rightly translate this as to the friend or my friend or my dear friend or something like that, but the root word is agape. You can certainly translate that as friend or dear friend, but the better, more faithful translation is beloved because it points you to the one who is loved. And so John expresses the term of endearment here to Gaius, a man whom he loves deeply. Why does he love him deeply? Well, he explains, doesn't he? My beloved friend Gaius, whom I love in truth. Some of John's favorite words are love and truth. But most specifically, he loves to talk about being in truth. That is, to be in the sphere of truth itself. What did Jesus Christ say about himself? He is the way, the truth, and the life. In John's thinking, when you come to know Jesus Christ, you exit the realm of falsehood and blindness and spiritual deadness 
and you enter into the realm of truth, the realm of life, the realm of love, the realm that coordinates most clearly with the reality of the God who made you. So John is not necessarily saying that he truly loves him, though that would be the case, but John is saying that the reason he loves him is because they are both Christians. Isn't that a wonderful example to us? First of all, of what a leader's love should be for the people of God. Such a deep and profound love. And then secondly, what type of relationship that every Christian shares, whether you know them or not, whether you like them or not, is that of love. Not a warm fuzzy but a sold-out radical commitment to the good of that person for the sake of their soul. Why would Christians be about that? Because the Christ is about that. Because it was by the love that Jesus had for his people that he laid down his very life. And it was by the love that the Father had for his people that he sent his very Son. You see, John and Gaius represent a relationship that every Christian actually lives in. A relationship that is based not solely on our habits, not solely on our hobbies, not even on whether or not we get along personality-wise, but something that supersedes all of those things based on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Based on the reality that now that you are a Christian, now that you belong to God, you enter into a family of brothers and sisters that extends throughout the globe. So John reflects this reality of this deep-seated love that they shared, not because of what they had in common, but because of the one who had saved them. We could spend the entire rest of our time, the entire rest of the day, talking about the implications and making some applications of that, couldn't we? But now you've got some homework to do. So he expresses his love for Gaius. Then in verse 2, he prays for his well-being. He says, Beloved, again, addressing him as the one whom I love in the truth, the one who my heart is knitted together with in Christ, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. John wants the physical well-being of Gaius. He wants the general well-being of Gaius. And he wants those things for Gaius because he knows that Gaius' soul prospers in the truth. This is a good example for us on how to pray for other people and how to pray for other churches. He, he wants, first of all, their general well-being or prosperity could be another way of translating that, though you know the baggage that that word comes with now thanks to some false teachers. He says, Gaius, my beloved friend, I pray that everything your hand touches succeeds. I pray that you prosper in every single endeavor that you take up. That's a good prayer, isn't it? You see, he knows 
that while in his day the Gnostics separated the spiritual and the physical, and the physical was always bad, the spiritual always good, and anytime the spiritual touched the physical, it corrupted the two, he knows that he's not a dualist. Christians are not dualists. We don't separate the human body. But we understand that the physical and the spiritual are joined together in one unit. And that it is perfectly fine to pray for the prosperity and or well-being of another Christian. The Lord himself determines that, does he not? But we can pray for it. He determines, or or rather he prays not only for his general well-being, but for his health also. Christians tend to be pretty good at this one. In fact, you look at the majority of our prayer requests, we don't really pray for spiritual things. We pray for physical things, which we'll fix in just a minute. I pray for my upcoming surgery. Is that a good prayer request? Absolutely. You've got biblical grounds. Pray for that surgery. Pray for healing from that diagnosis. Pray for one another for those things. But the reality is, in a fallen world, Everything generally and everything physically is marred by sin. And so it doesn't always go well, does it? Diagnoses come, and there's not always something that can be done about it. The Lord doesn't always grant healing, whether miraculously or through medicine. Sometimes in a fallen world, in fact, most of the time in a fallen world, something will kill you that you didn't want to kill you. Okay, you probably didn't want anything to kill you, but you know what I'm saying. And yet John prays against those things. I pray that your health prospers and thrives. But notice the foundation for all of those requests. As it goes well with your soul. Notice he's not praying that it would go well with his soul because he knows it goes well with his soul. He knows his soul is prospering. Why? Because he is in Christ. And while the external realities of life in a fallen world are tainted and marred by sin, the reality is that the soul whom Jesus saves is unaffected and unafflicted by sin. That while your body may perish, your soul thrives and prospers on into eternity until that moment when you receive a new body that will never again feel the effects of sin. And so he's saying essentially, Gaius, I pray that your outside well-being matches your inside well-being because I know that you're in Christ. I know that you're in the truth. And so the basis of his prayer request is not physical. The basis is spiritual. And the prayer is then that the physical would match the spiritual. So now that we've got our prayer request fixed, we can then move on to John's next point here. In verses three to four, he rejoices at his personal walk. Verse three, he says, for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John was brought great joy. He rejoiced not just simply, but rejoiced greatly. 
When the brothers, these men who have gone out from the church where John was, whom Gaius hosted in his home and met every single one of their needs, and then when they went back home, they gave a good report to the churches, and one of those reports was, John, Gaius hit the ball out of the park with his love for us. You just need to know about what a faithful man he is. He is walking in the truth, John. And John perhaps stretched out on his cot because he's so weak he can't get up, says, praise Jesus. It warms my heart so much to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He rejoices in the reality that Gaius' personal life, his walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, his personal holiness is alive and well because he lives a life that not just latches on to the truth in belief, but lives out the truth in his walk. How do you know what someone believes? Not fundamentally by what they say they believe, but fundamentally by the way they live. How much truth is undone sometimes by the words we choose to use, the websites we choose to look at, the scuffles that we choose to get into. The reality is, we will not walk in the truth perfectly. We will sin. But yet another reflection of walking in the truth is acknowledging that sin and having the humility to go and say, you know what, that was a sin. I'm sorry that I subjected you to my sin. I was not walking in the truth in that moment. Will you forgive me? You notice twice John uses that phrase, walking in the truth. It's not only that Gaius had a right understanding of sound doctrine, that he knew the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth that is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it was also that he lived in light of that truth, that the gospel affected every decision he made. The gospel affected the way he kept his home even. The gospel affected the way he treated people whom he did not know, strangers as John calls them. That's what it is to walk in the truth. So then, when you wake up every morning, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? I want from now on, the first thing that comes into our minds when we wake up in the morning to be, Lord Jesus, today I am dedicated by your help to walking in the truth. I'll walk in the truth as I go to work. I'll walk in the truth as I care for my children. I'll walk in the truth as I do yard work, whatever it might be. The reality is life is full of responsibilities, isn't it? And the wonder of being a Christian is that being in Christ sanctifies every single one of those responsibilities. It's helpful, I think, for us as we, if we take a little exercise, turn back to 1 John. We'll take a little exercise in John's theology, at least in his letters here, to understand what it is that he means by walking in the truth. Look, at, well, look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. 
There he says, this is the message which we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see what he does there? He acknowledges the reality that you must hold to a certain doctrine, but then he says at the very same time, if you hold to that certain doctrine, then you must live up to that doctrine. And if you don't live up to that doctrine, then he says you're lying. I think it's helpful to know that, and even to recognize, he does not say you're not a Christian. He just says you're a Christian who's lying to yourself and lying to those around you. So what do we do when we lie? We repent. We repent of our lie, of our lying life about the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we seek to live a life that is consistent with the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is light and we are now in him, we have fellowship with God, then that means we walk in light. And when we fail to walk in light and instead walk in darkness, notice there's only two categories. When we fail to walk in light and then we walk in darkness, then we're lying to ourselves, we're lying to God, we're lying to others, and we have need then to repent of that lie and to get back into fellowship with the truth. He continues this theme, look at chapter 2. Verses three and six, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We know who the he is there, don't we? Jesus. Which means we don't compare our lives to other Christians. We compare our lives to the Christ. And when we do that, we realize, first of all, we fall far, far short. But then secondly, we realize that Jesus saves those who recognize that they fall far short. And not only does he save them, but he sanctifies them and he seals them with his spirit and he gives them the spiritual energy at work in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, to live a life that is then consistent with that doctrine that we believe. Because as Romans 6 says, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're now in fact slaves to righteousness. John continues this theme, jump down to verse 9 of chapter 2. Verses 9 and 11, he says again, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. See Diotrephes next week. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
So coming back then to 3 John, what is it that John means when he says that Gaius is walking in the truth two different times and says that his apostolic wish and desire and prayer for everyone whom he is responsible over is to walk in the truth? What does he mean by that? He means to live a life of personal holiness. He means to let your life match the gospel you believe and preach. If you believe Jesus died for your sins, freed you from not only their penalty, but also their power, rose from the grave so that you might have justification, then live that way is what he's saying. And he's acknowledging that Gaius does in fact live that way. So as we think then about what is the foundational principle, the sort of personal principle for advancing the gospel, we don't start first with the advancement of the gospel. We start first with personal holiness, with a life that matches the gospel. Jesus has not saved us so that we can then do whatever we want. Jesus has saved us and made us his slaves so that we can live for him as Lord. Which is not just a verbal acknowledgement, but an all-out assault on the sin in my own life so that I would live for him. We must have a spiritual intensity that says, Jesus is Lord and I will live for him no matter what the diatrophies in my life are doing. I will not be affected by the sins of others, even if I am close with them. I will live for Jesus as my Lord. And Gaius reflects what is reflected in so many other faithful brothers and sisters, both here and throughout all time. He gets it and he lives it. So what is the... What is the personal requirement that it takes to advance the truth, to, to, to spread the gospel? Well, first of all, it takes personal holiness. So then let me just ask you, what daily effort do you make at personal holiness? What is your weekly, daily interaction with this book right here? The reality is we have over and over again in Scripture what the power that this book has is. Peter told us when we studied 1 Peter that just in the very same way that a newborn infant longs for its mother's milk, we have to long for the pure milk of God's word. So then I I ask you, do you? Does that longing then show itself in a daily commitment that says, no matter what happens today, I'm getting in the word. Whether it's for five minutes or an hour or whatever it might be, whether I read read one verse and just take it with me through the day as I go, or I'm committed to a, a whole Bible reading plan in a year and I'm reading five chapters today. Whatever it is, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a varying degree thing. As if if you read more of the Bible in one sitting, then you're going to be more holy. Just as John makes crystal clear, it's not about what you read, it's about what you live in light of what you've read. How do you know someone is personally sanctified? How do you know the, the, the measure of someone's spiritual maturity? Not based solely on whether or not they can pass a Bible test, 
but based solely on how they live in light of that Bible which they claim to know. You know who knows this Bible real well? The devil. Does he live it? No, clearly not. Secular atheist scholars know the Bible well. There's one named Bart Ehrman. Does he live it? Nope. Don't get me wrong, we need to know the Bible, but it doesn't stop there. It then fleshes itself out in the way that we make a daily effort to walk in the truth. That's the the foundational requirement, or the the first one really, the, 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 the center point of the Christian's life. And then secondly, if we have that personal walk in in holiness, if we walk in the truth, then we will not only be committed to personally walk in the truth, but we will then also be committed to help others spread that truth. So the second foundational requirement to advance the truth is Christians working together. Christians walking in personal holiness and Christians working together. Verses five to eight, John has commended Gaius's personal walk And now he commends Gaius' supportive work. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. He commends Gaius' faithful support, first of all. He addresses him once again as the one whom he loves. His soul loves to hear this news that Gaius is not only walking personally with the Lord, but supporting others who walk personally with the Lord and who preach the gospel that the Lord sent them to preach. It's a faithful thing you do. It's a good thing, but better than good. John is saying, Gaius, you're doing exactly what Jesus said you're supposed to do. Jesus would be thrilled, is thrilled. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. What was he doing? Well, he was doing a lot of it, first of all. Faithful thing you do in all your efforts. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't just a one, uh, a one sort of gift, you know, where people make the excuse, well, this is my spiritual gift. I don't do any of that other stuff because this is my spiritual gift. Now leave me alone. Let me have my kingdom. These brothers were sent out, preachers were sent out from John's church, and Gaius welcomed them and said effectively to them, anything you need, I will make it happen. Anything you need, I will put in effort for you so that you can do what Jesus has sent you to do. You know what Gaius understood? He understood the very same thing that every Christian understands, that the fundamental disposition of Christianity is that of a servant. The posture that Christians take is the very same posture that the Christ took. I am here not to promote myself. I am here to serve you. Whatever it costs me, no matter how, my, how tired it might make me, no matter how much it might deplete my resources, I am here to serve you. That's the Christian life. Are you living it? Verse 
He put in effort for these brothers and notice what these brothers were to Gaius. They were certainly his brothers, but before he had ever met them, they were strangers, John says. That was the official official designation for someone who entered a town and who didn't live there, a stranger, which is no surprise, right? We get that. You know what it is to be a stranger. But in those days, they didn't have a Holiday Inn Express or any other sort of place like that to stay where a stranger could come in and find lodging. There were inns around, but usually those were full of debauchery. Think Las Vegas, something like that. And so Christians who were committed to walking in truth, living in personal holiness, and proclaiming that truth, they certainly could have gone to those places and and told all those people about their sin, but it would have been more helpful had they not been subjected to those temptations. And so just as Jesus sent the disciples out and said, stay in whatever house welcomes you, the church sends missionaries out, preachers out, and effectively would have been told, stay in the house of whoever welcomes you. They would have been completely at the mercy of the hospitality of other Christians whom they had never met before. And how did Gaius treat them? He treated them like their brothers. He poured out love on them which is what they then went back and told the church. John, you should have seen the way that Gaius treated us. We have never been loved so well as when we were in Gaius's house. He met every single need we had. He took such good care of us, John. And John says, that's my boy. He gets it. So he encourages him about the the supportive work that he was already engaged in. And then second half of verses six through the rest of verse eight, he then encourages him to continue that support. And, And we'll see why next week he needed encouragement. But as we've already read the whole letter, he needed the encouragement because there was a man named Diotrephes who was discouraging people from doing that and kicking them out of the church for supporting the work of gospel ministry. Yes, even then there were those people in the church. And so likely Gaius would have been tempted to to sort of curb what he was doing. Maybe he even thought, am I I being too nice to people? And John says, keep it up. Keep doing it. Keep at the work. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. God. What does it mean to be worthy of God? How worthy is that? Can we even quantify that? Something is worthy of God? John says, Gaius, keep at it. You're doing a great job. Keep doing it because it is worthy of the Lord. Keep doing it and keep treating those brothers that come into your house as if you were treating the Lord himself. As if Jesus himself was walking into your house. Treat those brothers the very same way you would treat Jesus if he strolled into your house. And that's exactly what he was doing. There were several reasons, three reasons, in fact, he was supposed to do that. The first reason 
is that they had, verse 7, they had gone out for the sake of the name. You see, they weren't just traveling and having adventures like so many people are, are just so addicted to these days. I'd rather see the new heavens and the new earth than, than this one. They weren't just traveling to see new areas and gain new experiences and have wonderful adventures. They were on a mission. They were traveling for the sake of the name. What name? The name that is above every name. The name that one day every knee will bow at. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one and only name that can save the sinner from God's judgment. Why had these brothers gone out? Because they went to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter in Acts 4.12 says, and, for, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the church has continued Peter's proclamation, and these faithful brothers were doing that very same thing. That's the first reason he gives that Gaius needs to continue to support them because they went out for the sake of the name. The second is that they would accept nothing from the Gentiles. If any non-Christian, that's what the word Gentile there means, any non-Christian would for some reason try to support them, they would say, no, thank you, we're on the Lord's mission. And so just as Jesus told the disciples, be dependent on the one who takes you into their home, John told these preachers and is now telling Gaius that these guys are dependent not on non-Christians for their support, but Christians for their support. And the third reason begins with a therefore in verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He says, Gaius, continue to support them because they've gone out for the name. Support them because they take nothing from non-Christians and support them so that you can be a fellow worker for the truth with them. It's as if Gaius, in his support of these missionaries, is going out right alongside of them even though he stays right at home. He explains that the implication for their going is because of the name. And he explains that the responsibility that Gaius had, and indeed that every church has, is to support people like these. The word ought is rightly translated, but it can easily give us the sense of being a little too soft. This is not an ought as if he should support them. This is an ought because he is obligated to support them. You know, it's not like, you know, I really ought to eat better. I really ought to exercise, but then what usually comes of that? Eating poorly and not exercising. It's not that kind of ought. In fact, the word itself means to be under obligation to meet certain social or moral expectations. And you can even translate this word as owe. He could be saying here, he is saying, it could be translated, therefore we owe support to people like these. It's not that we ought to and we'll get around to it when we have enough money. No, we owe it to them is what he's saying. Why do we owe it to them? Because they've gone out for the sake of a name. 
Because they are extending the mission of the church. They are answering the Great Commission in the way that God has called them to answer it. And now John is saying, Gaius and everyone, notice he he extends it, therefore we ought to support. He focuses in on Gaius and then he says, and by the way, this is what every Christian should do. We play a role of support to those who go out for the sake of the name. And in so doing, then, we become fellow workers. We share in the fellowship of the ministry of the gospel. We get to enjoy the comforts of a heated building while there are so many brothers and sisters being bombarded by missiles from a wicked dictator, for instance. Or losing their heads in wicked lands, for instance. And we can perhaps sometimes guilt ourselves into thinking, well, we just have it so much better than they do. And it's true, we do by God's grace. But the blessed reality is, if we support them by prayer for them, encouraging them in some way, sending them money in some way, then we share in that very same work. What a blessing. As I was thinking about this passage I was so encouraged by the ways that we do this. I don't want you to get the impression to think that because I have to preach what it says, I'm telling you, you better do a better job. That's not it at all. Could we do a better job? Of course, we could always do a better job. But it's so encouraging to think that there is a legacy of gospel support, both locally and globally, right here at Applegate Community Church. What a gift that is. Let's make sure that the generations after us understand this. That they understand that life is not about their own priorities. It's not about their own goals primarily. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how their goals then fit into that goal, that mission from Jesus. In order to sort of bring this home a little bit more and even, like I said, to encourage us, I want to then wrap up with some application. As we think about then this need to support others who go out for the sake of the name, we recognize that fast forward to 2022, and and this looks a little bit differently. Certainly there are still unreached peoples. There are still people who have no idea Jesus exists. And we need to get the gospel to those people. But the reality is that the church is spread out across the globe much farther than it was in John's day. And there are so many more local churches than there were in John's day. And so as we think about then, what does this mean for us as a church? I want to give you six ways to support. These are not the six ways. These are just six things that I thought of. You could probably do better later with a cookie. (laughs) Cookies just help everything, don't they? See the ought to eat better comment. So way number one, way to support number one, make personal holiness a priority. Just like Gaius did, make personal holiness a priority. Make sure that your life matches your message. Have a plan to walk in the truth, somehow in some way. Make it as complicated as your mind works or as simple as your mind works. But if you have no plan, then plan to fail. 
Have a plan to walk in personal holiness. Secondly, pray regularly. Pray regularly for this work of gospel ministry locally. Pray for this church. Pray for other churches in our area. Pray for the rescue missions. Pray for the, the life pregnancy centers. Now I'm blanking on the name, but you know what I'm talking about. Pray for the ministry of the gospel that seeks to make Jesus Christ known both here and all the way across the globe. This would include, of course, the missionaries that we do financially sponsor. And then, so that would lead me to the third way that you can show support. Sign up to receive their newsletters. If you, don't, if you have not signed up to receive their newsletters, you really should sign up to receive their newsletters. Don't think generally, well, the church supports them, and then forget that if you're a member, you're talking about yourself. So then do you support them actively? So if you have not signed up to receive their newsletters, make sure you do that. The Armel family and the Morris family, we will, I will make sure, uh, with Mary's help, of course, because I might forget, that we send out an email this week with links to sign up for those newsletters. Every time I receive a newsletter, which doesn't come to me by special revelation, I'm on the email list. I signed up. That's how I get them. There's nothing special there. Every time I receive one, I read it to you up here because I want to keep our missions work in front of us. So I'll continue to do that. There haven't been any updates for a while, but every time I do get one, I'll read it. But it would be great if you got it in your email as well. So sign up to receive those newsletters. Number four, send encouraging notes. Perhaps you could email back or write a card or do something to someone somewhere, whether that would be both the, the two missionary families we support financially or the other missionary families that we support through prayer or the, the local missions or whatever it might be. Send an encouraging note that says, hey, I'm praying for you. What you do is important. Thank you for doing it. I know you probably don't hear this a lot, but thank you. We just want you to know, as the, as the people of Applegate Community Church, we just want you to know we've got your back. If you ever need anything, please let us know. So send encouraging notes. Number five, give faithfully to ACC, Applegate Community Church. When you give to this church, it not only supports the ministry of the gospel right here, partially with me, but it also then supports the ministry of the gospel as we as a church body formally give to other works of the gospel. So, so even in, when you put some money in the plate, you're doing that work. You're being a fellow worker for the truth. What a gift. And it's not even that hard. So make sure you're giving faithfully to Applegate Community Church. And then finally, number six, give directly to other gospel work. Give directly to other gospel work. And some of you already do this. You give to either missions organizations or you give to uh, pro-life organizations or whatever it might be. Uh, if you want to consider doing that in greater ways, then do that. If you're already doing this, then, then wonderful. You're a fellow worker for the truth. If you'd like to sit down and figure out how you could maybe go without a little bit of ice cream every month and then give that to the work of the gospel, maybe you want to do that. I was talking to a friend 
this week who's planting a church in Miami. He, he and I are, are very close friends. We met in Bible college. We, we attended Bible college. We attended seminary together. Uh, he's just a good brother. You may remember a few years ago, I went to preach at his winter camp in Nebraska. Uh, he's since moved from Nebraska to Miami to partner with uh, another local church there that's pastored by our mentor, mine and his mentor. He's there presently and aims to plant a church, another church in Miami, at sometime next year. Miami is, I think, the second most unreached or unchurched city in our nation. And so there's need for gospel preaching churches there. But Miami is also very expensive, especially for a pastor. So I was talking to him and he said, yeah, we're, you know, we're about 85% at our budget. And he's like, I know the Lord will provide, but I'm just not sure how it's going to happen. You know, we've got we've to find a building to meet in. But before we can find that building to meet in, we have to be able to pay for that building. And so we can't sign a contract to meet until we have the funds to pay. And we're just not quite there yet. And he said, it's, and of course, he's, he's wanting to be very careful to not use the word money. But the reality is he's talking about money. He says, you know, we've, we've got a lot of churches, faithful churches that are supporting us in various ways. He said, but usually they just want to send a team of youth, of youth for like a short-term mission so that then the youth can say, hey, we went on a mission. It's, it's a wonderful thing, but you know. And he said, in reality, and this was the part that he didn't say money, but I said, what you're saying is you need money. He said, in reality, what we really need is money. I need to be able to feed my wife and kids. I need to be able to try to devote full-time ministry or to full-time work to the ministry of the gospel so that we can get this little core team of 12 people established so that we would be a gospel witness in this section of Miami. So the reality is that gospel ministry takes money. It's something that you understand because you give it. See that your kind gift to me. This is not a bash you over the head, give more money. This is an encouragement. Thank you. However, if you desire, and if you have the means, some of us have different means. Some of us give, we're giving the best we can, we're maxed out. Others have more means, and they can give a little bit more if that's your case. Maybe consider giving directly to other gospel work as well. The reality is that if the church is going to continue to spread throughout the world, if the truth is going to advance throughout the world, it will take at least two things. Preachers who go and churches who send and support. Christians are a people who think about the end of time. And we long for that day when we will see Jesus face to face. And while we hold different understandings of what that might look like one day, The reality is that Jesus told us quite clearly what will be necessary to bring that end. In Matthew 24, 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If we want to see that the end comes, and we know it will, we know we can't speed up God's timeline, but it's incentive If we want to see the end come, then what we need to devote ourselves to is the advancing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see him face to face.
And we will get the commendation, not just from the Apostle John, but from Jesus himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this glorious and precious gospel. We thank you for the ways in which you help us to get this gospel out. And Lord, I personally thank you for the realities of the way that Applegate Community Church not only gets that presently, but has modeled that in the past. We look forward to the ways where you will continue to help us to be faithful in the future as well. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who give to the ministry of the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would help us to shape our lives around walking in the truth personally and advancing the truth globally as we think about what it is that the world needs most, the truth about you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.